Welcome to the 453rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Sean Hamill, author of the novel A Cosmology of Monsters. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Sean Hamill, author of the novel A Cosmology of Monsters. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great. If someone hasn't heard yet about your novel, A Cosmology of Monsters, how would you describe them? I guess I'd call it a family saga, a coming-of-age novel with horror or weird fiction elements. It tells the story of a family running a haunted house over the course of about 50 years, and the monsters that actually haunt the very real and figurative monsters that haunt that family. And do you remember the original impetus or idea that led you to write A Cosmology of Monsters? Yeah, there were actually a couple. So I always knew I wanted to write like a big family novel in the tradition of Meg Wolitzer or John Irving or Jonathan Franzen or whoever. And I I originally thought it was going to be a novel about a family running a youth hostel uh, in New Mexico because I'd gone to a youth hostel in New Mexico and I was really uh, charmed by the people running it. But a few years later, I I was taking a tour of a haunted house that was supposedly out of season. And one of the employees was actually hiding in one of the sets to scare the crap out of me. And that, that kind of sparked something in my head about who are the people who work in these places? What are their lives like? And then eventually the two ideas just melded together and I realized the family business should be a haunted house. And everything grew organically out of that. It wasn't originally meant to have supernatural elements. Those came in naturally as the story unfolded. It was originally supposed to be a naturalist or realist novel that dealt with horror only in a metaphorical way, but the literal horror actually started creeping in and made the book much better. So I just went with it. I know that there is a Lovecraft connection to a cosmology of monsters. I'm curious, why do you think Lovecraft has remained such a a figurehead in American horror fiction? I think a lot of Lovecraft's current prominence can be attributed to the generation of horror, and this is anecdotal. I don't have the specific data to back this up. So this is just sure, sure. you could, if you look at like the horror writers who were coming into their own in the seventies and eighties, the Stephen King, Clive Barker, Peter Stroud, they talked about Lovecraft a lot. I remember reading Dance Macabre, Stephen King's nonfiction book about the horror genre as a kid, and that was the first place I heard about Lovecraft actually. So I think that there was this sort of, at least for 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 casuals, I think for hardcore horror aficionados, they've always known about Lovecraft. But as far as uh, more mainstream audiences, which I would consider myself somewhere on the spectrum between the two, I, I feel like that might be where a lot of it comes from. And also the rise of the publication of those Penguin Classics editions that S.T. Joshi edits of the, the Lovecraft oeuvre. I think that those definitely have it. And I think that there is something... That's com- that feels completely new about Lovecraft when you put him in his time period, which is this sort of cosmic nihilism made literal with actual monsters. And it's his fiction can be very dry, but if 
for the patient reader who can also put up with some of the other more problematic aspects of his fiction, it, um, I, I feel like it's very rewarding once it actually gets to the, the meat of the story, which is usually uh, a series of revelations in Lovecraft. It's uh, the plot of a Lovecraft story is about learning something or finding something out, getting a peek beyond the veil. And that's that the, the language, the way it's written, it's still really good. Even though storytelling technology has advanced in the last hundred years, I think that his best prose uh, still holds up and has real power. Do you remember the first fiction that you ever wrote? Um, yeah, I was probably in fourth grade in, in Texas. They used to do, or at least in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, they used to do something called Young Authors Day, where they would bring in blank books. And basically all the kids were supposed to write and illustrate their own book. And I, that was, so me doing my book for my class assignment actually unlocked something. I knew that I had always, you know, loved stories, but I thought I was going to be a comic book artist. But when I got done with my book, I was 10 years old. I realized that the pictures weren't very good, but everybody in my class really liked the story. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is my lane. And that's where I stuck after that. And so what was the writing journey that led you to writing and getting a cosmology of monsters published? I, so throughout high school, I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I, I wrote a lot of screenplays, but once I got into college, I got a lot more. I had a really good uh, creative writing teacher, uh, specifically, I had a lot of good creative writing teachers, but specifically one who was teaching an advanced fiction course. And that was the first time I really started getting handed literary fiction, like Laurie Moore, David Foster Wallace, stuff like that. She would, she was the first, she was like, you've got talent, but this is the stuff you need to read. You can't just read this other stuff if you're serious about writing. And so I read everything she gave me and I just kept working. I, I got bit by the fiction bug at that point and put filmmaking away because again, I realized what I liked was writing the scripts. I didn't like directing. I didn't like acting or any of the rest. I just liked telling the story. So I didn't, so fiction on the page is the perfect place for me. I was, so when I finished college, I tried to apply to MFA programs right away, but I didn't get in anywhere. And then I kept writing. I went, I was the reader, a part of the reading committee for uh, the Catherine Ann Porter Award, which UNT gives out, uh, University of North Texas gives out to a book of short fiction every year. So I spent years reading slush piles of really good books of short stories. And I was also a reader for Carve Magazine for a while after they published my first short story. And all the while, my, my then wife was finishing school. So when she was done, I had actually finished a novel. And I, at that time, had an agent for that novel. And I, so I applied to MFA programs again, because she was done. And I actually got into a couple, one of which was the Iowa Writers Workshop, which of course, as soon as, at least for me, you get the call from Iowa, you go to Iowa, it doesn't matter who else calls. <laughs> so I, I packed up my life in Texas where I'd lived every, since I was like three years old and uh, we moved across you know, the country. And I, that novel that I had written and that agent left the business and the novel had already been out. So it had a stink on it. And that meant it wasn't going to um, 
be an easy sell. So I knew I needed to write something new. And I, my first semester, I was in a workshop with a professor who only wanted to do uh, short stories. And so I wrote a short story about a married couple breaking up at, at a haunted house where the husband works. Basically, he's dying. She's come to, of, of a brain tumor that's caused a personality change. And she's come to bring him home to die with his family because he's basically run away to just do what he wants for the last few weeks or months, however long he's got left. And my professor wasn't a big fan of the story. He actually hated it. He told me to dump the haunted house and replace it with the family, like building a boat or something. I didn't do that. But the other thing he said was that he didn't believe that these characters had ever loved each other, that they ever cared about each other, that they were, that they were actually parents because the kids were in the story as well. And that advice I did take to heart and I let it sit for a little while and thought about it and did some other stories that that professor liked better. But in the back of my head, I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do about this haunted house story? And what I realized was, okay, up the heart, keep the haunted house. And oh yeah, this is your family business novel. That's when those two ideas collided. And so it became my thesis. I worked on that for the rest of my time in Iowa. So from my second semester through my postgraduate year, I was working on a draft and signed with my my second agent. And he took me on on the strength of the half finished manuscript at that point and helped me through the rewrites. The first draft was this massive brick that was like, 220,000 words and the final published book is about 100,000 words. So he helped me literally cut the book in half. And it is the better version of the book. At least for me, I, I tend to wander down every blind alley whenever I'm writing a first draft and just explore everything. And then it takes me a little while to figure out, okay, this can go. Here's the actual heart of the story. And once we were done with our edits, me and my agent, he started querying editors and we were lucky because we started getting interest right away. And that, that, that definitely was not a sure thing for this book. It was a weird book. It was hard to find an agent who wanted to take it on. So I assumed, and it was hard, only about half of my teachers in Iowa were, were on board with what I was trying to do. The rest were, I don't know what to do with this. Although my classmates were very encouraging and seemed to understand it and like it. But I definitely had a feeling going in, this is going to be a tough book to sell because it's not really scary enough for the hardcore horror crowd. And it's not really literary enough for the New Yorker crowd. We we started getting interest right away from editors. And I, I was lucky enough to have the book go to auction because there were a few different editors who made offers on it. And I got to pick my favorite I, editor out of everyone I talked to. I got to make a choice of who I wanted to work with. And everything from there was just editing and the publication process. I, I was shocked that, that the editors started getting back to us so quickly after they requested the manuscript. Usually you, you wait a few weeks to hear back and usually the answer is no. But in this case, we started getting questions about having phone calls. Like I think he sent it on Friday and by Monday, there were people trying to schedule phone calls. So it was, wow. it was pretty yeah, it's impressive. <laughs> it was so. What was your MFA experience like? You you mentioned some of the professors didn't really understand the book you were working on. What was your overall experience like? I learned so much. Um, it was 
very stressful for me. And I don't, I, I wouldn't put that on the program or the faculty. I think that a lot of it is just my own anxiety and insecurity. And for the first time in my life, growing up in Arlington, Texas, I, I hadn't really been around. There's some culture and some writers based in the area, and I'd gotten to interact with them some, but I hadn't really been at that Iowa level before. And suddenly I'm in a classroom with people who are younger than me, for one thing, because I went in my 30s and a lot of these people came in right out of their uh, bachelor's degree. So I'm in there with 23 and 24 year olds who just came out of like Harvard and Brown and I'm 31 years old, feeling old for the first time in my life and um, not the teacher's pet. So um, always, but it, so it was very shaky, especially the first six months. But once I found cosmology and kind of d decided I, there was something about it that felt like, right. It was like, okay, I found my voice. I found the book. I'm the story I want to tell. And having a couple of professors, particularly Paul Harding, who wrote Tinkers and Enon, was a guest professor for two semesters while I was there. So I got to work with him for an entire year. And Paul was a huge help in helping me understand the sort of the continuum of genre and literary, which he seemed to understand very well. Like he, he got what I was trying to do and liked it. And so that helped me power through a couple of other classes where the instructors weren't as sure. It wasn't, it wasn't as much their cup of tea or they, they just, they didn't enjoy it. And that, that, I think that all of that is a positive thing, or it can be. I know a lot of people who leave their MFAs and then never write again because they get broken by it, essentially. But if you're lucky, meet the right people or to go maybe a little bit older whenever I did, I think that might have helped. What it actually does is it ends up strengthening your own personal aesthetic because you have to be able to weather people's opinions without without them breaking you, essentially. Uh, you have to grow a thicker skin and be able to brush off. I'm still stung whenever uh, a teacher didn't like what I was doing or just dismissed it, but it didn't deter me. I, I just kept plodding on. So I think in that way, it was very strong. And just in terms of reading other really gifted writers' stories and novels just for two years straight and seeing the different problems that come up. And I think you really learn more um, from workshopping other student stories than you learn from your own workshop, actually, because when you're in the hot seat, it's really hard to, <laughs> or at least for me, it's really hard to not get emotional or distracted or take things too hard and look at it really coolly and analytically like you can a classmate's story. And so it was, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, but it was also very trying and testing, but it also bore fruit in this book that... When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Not only did I, I think the fact that I went to Iowa helped me find an agent, helped me, helped the agent get the book to a a large publishing house. So it's been a gift. And I, I think there are a lot of worse things somebody could do with two years of their life than spend it with other people who think that writing and books are the most important thing in the world, if, if you can afford it or if the program's going to pay for you. Sure. Are there writers or books that inspired you on your writing journey? Yeah. Stephen King was a big one whenever I was first graduating from chapter books to grown-up novels. He was a big dip in the toe or dipping the toe in kind of writer who I've stuck with over the years too as a favorite. Also Anne Rice's stuff, especially the stuff she was doing in the 80s and 90s. The sort of, I think she perfected this damned narrator trope that I found very um, intriguing and that I borrowed as the voice, toned down somewhat as the voice of Noah Turner in Cosmology. And then as I got a little bit older, John Irving's The World According to Garp, I read that in high school and that sort of, I knocked my socks off as did uh, Birds of America by Laurie Moore. Each one of those, it was like, oh, books can do this? Like every time it was like another door opening. I felt the same way the two months it took me to work my way through Infinite Jest. Like I would never write a book like that, but it still was just like I, it it was like watching, I don't know, like uh, an athlete at the top of their game, you know, essentially, and, and realizing that language is capable of so much more than, than I had even realized, and that I'm still, you know, learning from that. Um, I think those are some of the, the, the markers. I think Donna Tartt, too, in my 20s, I, I didn't read her until after her second book came out, The Little Friend. And Seeing that sort of literary page turner, a combination of the best of genre and of, you know, literary sensibilities and being like, that's it. That's what I want. That's what I want to read. That's what I want to write and what I'm reaching for. Obviously, I don't think I'm at that same level, but I I think that's one of those. Oh, and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell is the other big one. I, I think that's one of those books that has, I think the term is like illusion of depth where it feels like a whole world has been created and I don't know how much of that really translates into my fiction, but it's a book I go back to over and over again because of the world building and the dark wonder inherent to that particular book. Stephen King and reading him in your formative years and then continuing to read him. How did that feel when you saw the glowing review that he gave for your novel? That was maybe the best part of the whole process. (laughs) It was really cool because what happened was they... My agents and editors asked me for my wish list of of blurb writers. And so, of course, Stephen King was at the very top of that list. I didn't think we'd ever get it, but... The the public my book's publicist at Penguin Random House, or rather, yeah, I think she's at Penguin Random House. I'm not sure how with the sub branches since Pantheon's sure, part of yeah, the yeah. But so anyway, but the book's publicist just happened to be friends with Stephen King's publicist. And so she got his publicist interested in the book. And when she read it, she then told her boss about it and he agreed to read it. 
And at that point, that would have been enough, just knowing he was going to read my book. And that's what I would, you know, what I told um, my wife whenever we found out was, this is enough. He's not going to blurb it, you know, it's, but it's so cool that he's even going to look at it. But the, the, the crazy thing was he kept emailing my publicist. He was traveling the week he was writing it. So he would email her and be like, don't worry, I'm still reading. I'm enjoying. I just need a little bit more time. And so, you know, I'm starting to think, okay, maybe this is going to happen. And then I was at work and I got the email on my phone that that had the blurb in it. And so I, I opened the email. I'm just standing in the middle of um, the office, just in the middle of traffic, you know, essentially human traffic, rather, mm-hmm. reading this thing. And then I walked into my office, shut the door, sat down and just cried for a minute because I couldn't believe, like, it just felt it was such an overwhelming um, thing. And that was the very first blurb that we got actually. And so it was like this wonderful, like benediction to start the publication process with from the, the storyteller who I've returned to again and again for comfort, for guidance on how to tell particular types of stories for just who I've loved so much. And for, for so long, give that blessing was really cool. That's wonderful. So are you working on another novel now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm almost finished with the second draft of a new book. I'm almost at 100,000 words, hopefully. (laughs) I don't think this draft is going to be 220,000 like cosmology. I've learned a little bit. So I I figure after this draft, I'll probably uh, polish it up and then send it on to my agent. And hopefully I'll have more to report later this year. Great. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I'd say if you can try and get on the reading committee of, of an award or a literary journal, especially if you're first starting out, because you will start to notice patterns in your own attention, how it wanders when it's kept. You'll learn more about writing from doing something like that than you will from just about any class, like just hour after hour put in reading other people's work. And you start to notice like, okay, there are a lot of stories being written right now about, I don't know, divorce or whatever. So maybe don't do the divorce story right now, or or, <laughs> or if you're going to do it, do something interesting with it. I think a lot of what beginning writers don't understand is the current publishing scene because they have their favorite books, or at least I didn't. So I wasn't like current on my reading. My And it wasn't until I had that professor who started giving me more recent work and putting me on that committee that I started to see, oh, okay, this is what people are doing right now. This is what agents and editors are looking at right now. And so I think getting familiar with the market is always a good thing. The other thing, obviously, read a lot, write a lot. If you can take a class, that's good. If not, if you can find a writer's group, other people to just spending time with other writers, talk other people who think that writing is important is a big deal. And also just try and read as much as you can, even on your own. Like that that's the thing. Reading is basically a second job for me at this point, which is, it's a wonderful job to have, but it's between professional obligations with, and also just my reading for pleasure and my own research for my next book. It's just know you're signing up for basically a second full-time job, but if you love it enough, you won't mind too much. And, and on that note, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh God. So it's a little, when will this go up? Probably in the next couple of weeks. 
Okay. All right. That's fine. The reason I'm saying that is I was on the the jury for the Bram Stoker Awards for the novella category this year. So I didn't want to put anything on blast. I think the list goes live in 10 days. So I can talk about it a little bit. I just, so um, actually, yeah, I've been reading a lot of novellas because of, I, I had the privilege of being the chair of the long fiction jury for the Bram Stoker Awards this year. And So I've read a lot of really, I I think the novella is such an interesting form and it's one I'd like to conquer. But as far as what I've been reading, I just finished True Crime by Samantha, I'm going to mispronounce her last name. I want to say it's Kolesnik. Let me look here. Sorry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Kolesnik. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. As far as novels, I really enjoyed The Brightlands by John Fram which came out last year, A Block 17 by Kamiko Guthrie, The Return by Rachel Harrison, Clown in a Cornfield. I, I don't read a lot of YA, but I really loved that book by Adam Caesar, I think. I may be mispronouncing Adam's last name. So that that's the sort of the, I'm trying to think of the other novellas. I should have come with a list. I This question always comes up and I always draw a blank. Okay. <laughs> but Exhalation Number 10 by A.C. Wise was another one I really loved. And of course, Night of the Mannequins by Stephen Graham Jones. Best of Both Worlds by S.P. Miskowski. There's so much good stuff happening in horror right now, both at the big five or big four now, but also in the indie presses. And it's really cool to be part of that scene and actually be able to have conversations with with these writers on Twitter or when we're on panels together and stuff and just be part of this larger community uh, that's producing so much good work. In fact, so much that it can be a little overwhelming just trying to keep up. Sure. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel? I've got a website. SeanHamill.com, which is, I don't update very much, but it's it's got links to a lot of press that I've done. And I'll, I'll add this to that list once it goes live. I'm also on Twitter. I'm at Sean Hamill. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram. I'm most active on Twitter, but I, I try to keep up with the other two as well. So please feel free to reach out and say hi, especially if you liked the book. I, I, that always brightens an author's day or any author probably loves hearing that you liked their book. So not just me, just just putting that out there. It's never going to make a writer's day worse if you reach out and tell them you liked their book. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Sean Hamill, author of the novel, A Cosmology of Monsters. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Sean, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. This was fun. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of A Cosmology of Monsters by Sean Hamill, read by Sean Patrick Hopkins, available from PRH Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. Like me, my mother was born somewhat late into her parents' marriage. Unlike me, however, she reaped the benefits of being born to financially successful parents. Her father, Christopher Byrne, was a women's clothing buyer for Dillard's department stores and had a close personal relationship with William T. Dillard himself. Margaret didn't know her father well. She thought of him as a handsome stranger who smelled of cigarettes and who always brought home gifts from trips to New York, mostly original cast recordings of the Broadway musicals he saw while away, but she never wanted for anything. She grew up in a big house in the suburbs of Memphis, Tennessee, and always had a generous allowance, nice clothes, cars, and, when the time came, tuition at her parents' alma mater, Tilden University, a small conservative Christian school in Searcy, Arkansas. 
you'll never have to worry about money, Margaret's mother told her. And in 1965, that seemed true. My grandfather had been so successful at Dillard's that in 1966, as my mother matriculated for her freshman year of college, he left the company to open his own store. However, by the winter of 1967, the store was off to a slow start. And in the summer of 1968, while Margaret was home for summer break, her mother broke the news. The store was failing. The Burns would pay Margaret's tuition for another year, but would have to take away her car, her monthly allowance, and the dorms. When Margaret reminded her parents that she would need at least two more years to finish her bachelor's in English, never mind her master's in library science, her mother said, I'd suggest you speed up work on your MRS before you worry about your BA. Only somewhat daunted, Margaret did her best with a near-impossible situation. When she returned to Circe in the fall, she'd secured a job at Bartleby's, the town's only bookstore, and rented a room from the owner, Rita Johnson, a widow whose only religion was the written word and whose politics were more Betty Friedan than Richard Nixon. Mrs. Johnson lived in a cozy two-story house near campus, charged a pittance for rent, and laid down almost no rules. She didn't care what hours Margaret kept, as long as she didn't bring boys to the second floor of the house, and Margaret could use the TV and the record player as much as she wanted, as long as she kept the volume low. All of this new freedom was an abrupt, almost startling change from the stringent rules of the old residence hall. Margaret had never wanted to come to Tilden, with its mandatory signed morality pledges and heavily enforced attendance at Sunday morning worship services. She'd enrolled because it was the only school her father would pay for. She'd suffered through all the religious ritual in the hopes of a college degree, a career, and a life of her own. And now, living with Mrs. Johnson, she got her first taste of what that life might look like. Margaret loved her new quarters, her new freedom, and best of all, she loved the dim lighting and narrow aisles of Bartleby's. She loved stocking the new arrivals, setting up themed displays, and helping her customers, kindred spirits on the hunt for stories. The only burr in her work life was a young man named Harry, who came in maybe twice a week and asked her questions to which she suspected he already knew the answers. Who wrote Great Expectations? Where do you keep your biographies? He always thanked Margaret for the information, but regardless of what he claimed to be interested in, he would inevitably camp out on the floor in the science fiction section where he read books without ever buying anything. He looked young, about Margaret's age, and she assumed he must go to Tilden as well. She wondered how he found time to read so much and go to school. Also, if he went to Tilden, he could probably afford books. Why loiter? It got on her nerves, but whenever she confronted him about it, he replaced the unpurchased merchandise on the shelf, apologized, and left. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.